Hey everyone, thanks for listening in again to Plum Peeps. Today we're continuing our journey around the country, visiting different fellowship programs to hear from dedicated educators about some interesting cases and patients that they've taken care of recently. Burp, how excited are you for today's episode? So excited. Ready, raring to go. You know I love fellows case files and you know I love recording each week. It's the best. Uh, in addition, this is the first time that some really great educators and some eager fellows just encountered a great case and then reached out to us to present it, which I think is incredibly cool and is exactly the type of thing we want to foster here at Palm Peeps. So if you're listening and you have a good case and you want to come on the show and follow in their footsteps, definitely reach out to us. Definitely, Firth. I couldn't agree more. And we are so excited to be heading down south this week. And we're headed to the University of Mississippi Medical Center and excited to introduce our guest. So first, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Meredith Sloan. Meredith is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Mississippi. She completed her medical school at Medical University of South Carolina College of Medicine and her residency at Mississippi. Meredith, we're so excited for you to be coming on today, and thank you for joining Poem Peeps. Thanks so much for having us. I'm a big fan, so I'm super excited uh, for the chance to be on an episode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And today we also have a special episode because we have two fellows joining us, which we love. Next, we have Dr. Kevin Kinlock. Kevin is a senior fellow at University of Mississippi Medical Center. He also completed his internal medicine residency there, and he completed his medical school at Meharry Medical College. Welcome to Poem Peeps, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thanks so much, Kevin. And next we have Dr. Jesse Harvey. Jesse is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi and is the pulmonary and critical care program director. She's also the director of the medical intensive care unit and has been at Mississippi Medical Center since her medical school days. She's not only a dedicated educator, she leads the POCUS curriculum for IM residents as well as pulmonary critical care medicine fellows. Jesse, we're so excited to have you on today, and thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having us. So excited. All right. Well, we all want to dive in, but before we do, just our standard disclaimer, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice. The views we express today are not necessarily those of our respective employers, and the case we present today is HIPAA compliant. Uh, some details may have been changed or, or obscured uh, so that they protect the privacy of our patients. Uh, so now that we're through that, let Meredith, Kevin, why don't you tell us about the case you have for us today? Absolutely. So our patient was a 65-year-old male uh, who presented to the ED with worsening hemoptysis over the last several days after a recent lung biopsy. Um, just a little background um, so you know the context. He's an active smoker. He has a 50-pack year history, and he had been having a cough with some small volume hemoptysis. He ultimately had a chest CT for that workup, which revealed a large left upper lobe mass, 10.3 by 6.4 centimeters. We are, of course, very suspicious of this mass given his history. Um, so three days prior to his ED presentation, he was taken for a bronchoscopy with BAL, transbronchial biopsies, endobronchial biopsies, and EVIS guided TBNA of 11L along with TBNA brushing and radial EVIS TBNA of his left upper lobe mass. Thank you so much, Meredith, for providing that context so far. And I think um, you you and Jesse and Kevin are going to um, make my Texas accent come out at some point along the show today. So watch out for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, appreciate you um, providing us with some context. Um, you know, anytime someone just had a procedure and is coming back for evaluation, 
having a history of what led up to that procedure and the time course are definitely two huge factors that we want to consider. You know, we'll obviously get some more information here in a bit, um, but the, some things that I'm that are already pointing out to me are, you know, the patient had hemophysis prior to his procedure. So this new presentation, you know, could be a procedure complication or could be worsening of his underlying um, lung pathology. And also the three days that you mentioned is helpful. You know, certainly if we were, if this were a major bronchial artery bleed, we expect that to happen a lot sooner. And we know from our hemoptysis episodes that the most cases of massive hemoptysis are from bronchial arteries. So it is not ruled out, but another factor to consider. Importantly, that lets us know what to do if things get worse quickly. So namely, putting the left lung down is the most likely source and think about airway protection. Yeah, Christina, Chris and Matt, who are on our hemoptysis episode, would certainly be proud of us making this consideration early on. Uh, Meredith, you know, this patient had a lot of different samples taken, uh, even with a very large mass, which like we know is sort of the clear place that we're going to go, but it also had some uh, uh, brushings, had a lymph node biopsy. You know, each procedure we do with the bronchoscopy, we know adds some marginal additional risk, but it's often that we do these extensive procedures in a lung cancer evaluation. So I'm just hoping you could talk to us to some, uh, about why all these different samples were taken in this case, uh, and this patient had the procedures that he did. Yes, absolutely. So that's one of the best things about bronchoscopy is we have the flexibility to do a lot of these different things in one procedure. Um, so in this patient's case, not only did we want an accurate diagnosis, but we're also able to stage the mediastinum at the same time. Um, so these procedures, one, we are staging, um, and two, making sure we are getting enough tissue in order to send, uh, not only get the diagnosis, but also send for all of our modern testing, such as molecular and genetics. Yeah, thanks, Mary. I think it's so important for us. You know, it's not just like we need just the pathology anymore. We also want to have so much more available to uh, find all these mutations. Maybe another episode coming up at some point. <laughs> uh, so, Kevin, uh, let's dive back into the current presentation. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened when the patient came to the emergency department? Sure thing. So, as Meredith said, uh, three days after his biopsy, he came back to the emergency room with worsening cough and hemoptysis. Um, he also reported some shortness of breath and fatigue over the last two weeks. On our VIA systems, he told us he had a non-productive cough, decreased appetite, and occasional confusion preceding the biopsy. Um, on evaluation in the ER, he was tachycardic and hypoxic, requiring four liters nasal cannula. Uh, Dave, I'm curious what you would be thinking about at this point. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I feel like, you know, even though this is just a bit of the information we're always going to get, I feel like this is always the right time to start thinking about an initial differential so that we can do a little bit more hypothesis-driven inquiry rather than like a shotgun approach to things. You know, so I, as Christina mentioned, I definitely have concern for a post-procedural complication. Even if there wasn't some immediate bleeding, uh, the prior biopsy site could still be a place where you could have potential worsening. You could have uh, reopening of something. You could have weakening of a mucosal law, wall. If you got part of a tumor and you were close to a vessel that was going through it, it may not happen right away. Uh, but it's notable that he was having some worsening symptoms over the past couple of weeks, even before the biopsy. You know, so I'm still thinking that this could be uh, something that ha was happening already and not immediately related to the procedure. You know, so progressive malignancy is possible, like this mask could just be getting worse. And at some point, you know, sort of, you'll sort of have a tipping point and develop a new complication. Although I usually think of that as like a little bit slower. They're having like ongoing progressive worsening hemoptysis, shortness of breath, fatigue that's like happening and happening, not like a few days where all of a sudden uh, you notice these progressive new symptoms. 
the cough also raises the possibility of a pneumonia. You know, with a mass that large, he's definitely at risk for post-obstructive pneumonia, and that could definitely cause symptoms like he's having. Could also, at some point, a mass that large have some pleural involvement and complications that could lead to an associated effusion or empyema that could manifest in all sorts of ways. A little bit less likely to have hemoptysis with that unless you were coughing more. And then finally, you know, he has a 50 pack year smoking history. So even though we haven't heard about this, there's almost a, a impossibility that he doesn't have some element of COPD and he's been doing a lot in his airways. So could that just lead to a COPD exacerbation and then you're coughing more and having some hemoptysis just from the airway irritation? Uh, you know, but on that thought, we still have lots more info to gather. Uh, so Kevin, maybe you could tell us some more about what history we know about him. Absolutely. So aside from the mask, he really denied any other prior medical or surgical history. Um, he did, however, have a as-needed albuterol inhaler at home. So at some point, it may have been diagnosed clinically with COPD, but we had no PFTs or anything on file to, to, to diagnose for us. Um, we mentioned his smoking history, like you were saying before. And otherwise, he has one to two drinks a day. He has no known drug allergies. Um, family history of multiple cardiac fat risk factors, including hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, and his daughter actually suffered a sudden cardiac death as well. His siblings have also had significant um, malignant history with breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer. Thanks, Kevin. And I'm certainly worried about this patient given his recent history and presentation that you and Meredith provided. And I'm really eager you know, to take a look at him and get some diagnostics quickly. Um, so Meredith, what do we have for that? Yeah, for sure. So we didn't actually get to meet the patient until a little bit later when he came to the ICU. Uh, so I'll hold off on our giving you our exam. Uh, he did have some diagnostic workup in the ER though. Uh, his labs were notable for a leukocytosis to 15 bicarb of 31 with a normal BUN and creatinine, albumin of 2.6 with otherwise normal LFTs. And on his ABG, he had a lactate of 1.2. His pH was 7.26. PCO2 was 78. PAO2 was 146. Um, and finally, he had a pro-BMP of 1,900. Yeah, th thanks, Meredith, for giving us the labs in this way and not like, you know, not your exam, because I feel like this is so actually how we see patients. We often have like a little history from the record and we have some diagnostics even before we get to lay eyes on them. So it's helpful to think about cases in this way. And in, on that note, there are very few things we like here more than a, a, a diagnostic ABG, bone peeps. It's a, a high on our list of initial tests that we should get. So can you interpret this one for us? Yes, absolutely. We also love a good ABG. So um, generally our rule of thumb is for every 10 of PCO2 above normal, um, you should see a drop acutely in your pH of 0 0.08. So in this case, you know, he's about 40 above normal, um, just doing some bedside math here. So I would expect him, uh, his pH to drop by at least 0 0.3. Um, which we don't really see on this ABG. His pH is only 7.26 and not like less than 7.1. And so that tells us this probably is not all an acute process. There's some chronicity to it, which really is corroborated by the fact that he has a bicarb of 31, uh, which would at least take several days for the kidneys to work up to that. 
Thanks, Meredith, for walking through that um, and a great way to approach it. Um, you know, I think gases like this are so helpful uh, because in a patient who, you know, quote unquote, has no past medical history, uh, but is presenting with a large mass and heavy smoking history like this, I worry that he just has no diagnosed medical history, right? May have been um, out of hospital care or out of um, physician care for a while, but definitely has a lot going on. So Kevin, based on all of this so far, um, what does this put you on the lookout for? Um, anything specific that you're thinking of? Yeah, so this is something that we see very commonly is, is uh, hypercapnic respiratory failure, be it chronic or acute. Um, and in his case, you know, the, the chronicity of it makes you think of more longstanding things like COPD, um, obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, hypoventilation. However, you know, him having a history of COPD doesn't mean that that's the only thing. You can also just have another new acute thing on top of that, like in a hospital setting, opiate overdose or other intoxications or, or neuromuscular weakness or, or many, many things that come up. Um, in addition to his labs that we just discussed, um, the patient did have some imaging. So he had a chest X-ray with uh, left lung consolidation and evidence of volume loss and some irregular opacities in the, in the upper lung field, but with some, some decent aeration still. This was followed by a CTPE that showed no PE, but did have left lower lobe mucus plugging and uh, collapse, but a large mixed attenuation of that left upper lobe mass with consolidation and interval development of gas and air fluid levels. Um, I'll just mention here that he also had an echo during that time with normal biventricular function. Oh, thanks, Kevin. There's a bunch of stuff here that I, I would love to dive into. You know, I love your list of uh, differential for sort of chronic respiratory acidosis and acute on chronic. And I would just think of those of like as these really hypoventilatory disorders. And, you know, you mentioned all the main categories of those. Like, are you hypoventilating because you have, you know, obstructive airway disease, either central or large, air, like a OSA or large airways, like a COPD or asthma? Uh, do you just have obesity hypoventilation syndrome or some chest wall deformity where you have difficulty having alveolar ventilation or something else like a neuromuscular weakness or opioids where you can do it, your airways are fine, your lungs are fine, but there's something else making you ventilate less. And so, you know, having that differential in mind as we approach is great. And as you said, anything can happen in the hospital to make it worse. Like a pneumonia on top of one of those things is always going to lead to an exacerbation. On top of that, I love this x-ray. We're definitely going to post it. Uh, I feel like there's a lot going on and your eye naturally goes to this uh, mid-lung opacities because they're so obvious there. But there's also some irregularization that is a hint to what we see on the CAT scan. Uh, so you get a suspicion that there might be a left lower lobe collapse, the left diaphragm is pulled way up and, and the ribs are pulled together on that side, which is a sign I, I really think is important to look for. You know, so Jesse, unsurprisingly, your fellows are, are rocking through this case so far. They haven't needed your guidance, but the CT is sort of a complicated one. And so I'm hoping you can weigh in here. We have a mass that was, you know, sort of solid and now is mentioned as new gas and air fluid levels. And that's pretty concerning. We don't see that all the time and it's after a procedure. So what would you make of that kind of finding for a patient like this coming to the ICU? Yeah, I agree, Dave, that this CT is definitely concerning. Obviously the most concerning thing so soon after a biopsy is a pneumothorax. And sometimes it can be difficult, just like with masses, to tell if the air is in the pleural space or intraparenchymal, with the pleural space being more common. Sometimes it can be helpful to have additional lateral images to help distinguish between the two. However, in this case, the air appears to be most likely in the lung parenchyma, which could have been caused by the biopsies. Another thing I would definitely be concerned about in this case is the development of a new infection, particularly a necrotizing infection, as this large mass already made the patient at increased risk of developing a post-obstructive pneumonia. 
And then also on my differential is just the progression of the tumor with the development of necrosis, which would indicate that this is a very aggressive tumor since it happened over such a quick time interval. Basically, the presence of gas in any area where it previously wasn't present is concerning and requires further investigation in a very timely manner. Thanks so much, Jesse. And I really love um, kind of the, the three top things on your differential, as you mentioned, were potentially abscess, pneumothorax, um, or just tumor progression and necrosis. So definitely um, things for learners to consider. Um, you know, I think probably all of us here will agree on starting some antibiotics as this could be a new sign of um, new or severe infection, um, given his multiple risk factors. And definitely, I think a learning point is definitely want to talk with physicians that actually did the procedure. And I think this could go, um, you know, on different examples beyond this case. So I want to chat with um, IP colleagues since they recently did the procedure in this area. So those are kind of some things I'm thinking of at this point. But Meredith, I want to go to you next and um, see if we can provide us a little bit more context of what happened with this patient. Yes, so we did talk to our interventional pulmonary colleagues, and they were also um, concerned and wanted to start antibiotics. Uh, so the patient was admitted to medicine. He started on pitazo and vancomycin for possible post-obstructive pneumonia. Unfortunately, the following day, he reported having some difficulty coughing up his sputum, felt like he was getting really choked up, and his oxygen requirements escalated throughout the day until eventually he was on a non-rebreather. And so the medical ICU was called to evaluate, which is when we got to see him. So on our assessment, he was satting 83% on the non-rebreather. His heart rates were in the 180s, and his blood pressure was 154 over 136. He told us he was feeling very uncomfortable, anxious, as well as very short of breath and just fatigued. He was tachypnic. He had diminished breath sounds bilaterally, but actually no bronchi, rails, or wheezes. He was tachycardic and irregular, and he had mildly decreased upper extremity strength, four out of five with normal sensation and deep tendon reflexes. Otherwise, no lower extremity edema. Um, so he's given five milligrams of IV metoprolol with some improvement in his heart rates to the 120s. And at that point, he was taken to the ICU and started on high flow nasal cannula. Yeah, sounds like the right call for sure. He needed a lot of help and escalation of care. Uh, so how did he do once he got there with uh, just getting a little oxygen support and a little rate control? Well, we brought him over to the ICU, as Meredith said. Um, an initial EKG confirmed that he was an AFib. Repeat chest imaging at that time showed no interval change from his prior imaging, but did confirm those prior findings. Um, given his respiratory acidosis, after about two hours on high flow, repeat ABG was obtained, which is not really improving with a pH of 7.12, PCO2 of 118, VO2 of 71, and a bicarb of 38. So at that point, he was escalated to BiPAP. Um, his respiratory status continued to decline. His next ABG after two hours on BiPAP continued to worsen with a pH of 7.05, PCO2 greater than 133, and a PO2 of 297. So at that time, the decision was made to proceed with intubation. Oh, thanks, Kevin. Yeah, those are definitely some scary um, numbers, I think, if you're seeing um, on an ABG and someone in the MICU. And I think we'll have, need to have a whole different episode to discuss AFib in critical care patients, but looks like he was appropriately managed um, from that standpoint. Um, but I think, you know, we we manage people so often with high flow nasal cannula and BiPAP. And 
I think those two methods of support are so um, incredibly helpful and, and oftentimes we can avoid intubation. But in this case, um, I think you, you said you had a close interval follow-up, you know, monitoring the patient, um, not only the gases, but also, you know, at exam and being at the bedside. This is someone who you're going to be with checking on frequently, not only yourself, but you'd want the house staff or any other providers there. Something that Meredith brought out earlier is just that he already had some weakness, so it'd be definitely important to monitor those. Um, but overall, for hypercapnic respiratory failure, intubation and mechanical ventilation is still the standard of care. So we shouldn't be afraid to use that when we need to um, if we've exhausted other methods as you did. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Christina. I feel like we use so much high flow and non-invasive now that we've become you know, really relying on it. And we're doing the right thing most of the time. But the patients I worry about most are those ones that maybe have been on one of those for too long. And we haven't just taken the time and intubated them and saying that well, that's okay. Some people just need to be on, a, on the ventilator. I want to dive into this acute on chronic uh, hypercapnic respiratory failure a bit more, given we've started to think about what could be going on uh, in the context of this patient. But Jesse, I'd love to take a little detour here uh, and touch on some of your expertise and think about POCUS in the ICU. Talk about POCUS a lot for patients in shock in the ICU and doing a quick exam of that. But I think there are things we can learn with the ultrasound for respiratory failure as well. And uh, you know, something that I always want to get better at, and I think all people should get better at, is doing the whole POCUS exam. So are there any things on for POCUS studies that you look for for patients with progressive respiratory failure that you think are really helpful for learners when they're doing a new admission? Absolutely, Dave. I love to use POCUS as a tool for diagnosis and respiratory failure. The way I use it sometimes depends on the patient scenario, but in general, I do a full lung POCUS exam in patients with new respiratory failure not only in an attempt to diagnose the problem, but also to establish a baseline in case the patient's respiratory failure progresses, such as in our case. Important clues to look for on lung ultrasound would be the absence of lung sliding, indicating a possible pneumothorax, particularly in a patient who recently had a procedure, such as a lung biopsy, thoracentesis, or even a central venous catheter placement. Also, in a post-procedure patient, the presence of a new pleural effusion would be concerning for a hemothorax, especially if the fluid appeared complex with the presence of hematocrit sign. Another common finding in a patient with progressive respiratory failure would be the development of B lines, especially if an A-predominant profile was previously present, which could indicate worsening cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, alveolar hemorrhage, or the development of infection. And then in patients who have a high suspicion of respiratory muscle weakness or fatigue, I sometimes use lung POCUS to evaluate diaphragmatic function uh, by looking at the excursion of both hemidiaphragms or measuring diaphragm thickness uh, as a reduction in either of these could indicate the presence of respiratory muscle fatigue uh, and may provide further evidence that the patient needs invasive mechanical ventilation. Sometimes it can be difficult to obtain adequate views, uh, so I don't perform this exam on every patient with progressive respiratory failure, but it can certainly be helpful in select patients. Awesome, and I'm really glad you mentioned it. I actually just was doing a workshop on this, on the diaphragm thickness and the excursion. It's so easy to get with a bedside ultrasound, and it's like, you know, it, I think it's not been on my list for people who've been on the vent for a while, and it's something I'm trying to incorporate more, so I'm really glad you mentioned that. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for, yeah, I definitely feel like I, I need to put that um, more on kind of my bedside POCUS skills as well. And um, Jesse, I think using POCUS, not only as you mentioned for um, evaluation of um, acute complications, but definitely establishing a baseline that's helpful for the team to follow. So Meredith, what, what did you and the team think was happening um, back to our patient going on in this situation with him? 
So we obviously knew that this man was very sick with this very rapid clinical decline. We included a lot of things on our differential. Um, we were already treating him from pneumonia, but we we're also thinking about COPD exacerbation, possibly some heart failure as well. And just concerned that a lot of his metabolic demand may have been from sepsis picture, um, which did turn out to uh, probably be the case because after intubation, he developed some worsening shock requiring vasopressors, and we thought this was all septic. Fortunately, by day four of admission, he was much improved uh, after some antibiotics. So we started some daily breathing trials. Um, during the breathing trials, though, the patient became very agitated, tachycardic, tachypneic um, when he was placed on pressure support. Even though he was awake, calm, cooperative other times when he was on regular vent support. So about day 10, we discussed uh, placing a tracheostomy with the patient and his family. And the patient actually strongly preferred to get a trach. Uh, hey, Dave, do you see this situation often? Oh, totally. Um, you know, like to, to sort of summarize where we're at, you know, this uh, is now a 65-year-old. He's got significant smoking history, a pulmonary mass concerning for malignancy. We still don't know for sure what it is likely COPD in the background as well, who was admitted with acute on chronic hypercapnic respiratory failure requiring intubation and ultimately found to have a pneumonia, maybe a procedurally related or post-obstructive pneumonia with sepsis shock as well, who now has failure to wean from the ventilator. Um, so, you know, failure to wean in a case like this can happen for lots of different reasons. You know, it could be that there is still just a lot going on in the lungs. Maybe there's still a you know, post-obstructive pneumonia that's working its way through. The mass has taken up a significant portion of his lung, actually decreases respiratory ability. Maybe he had already a borderline FEV1, FVC for sort of vent liberation, and then now he's got critical illness myopathy on top of that. And so uh, in just in even 10 days, we know you can lose a lot of strength that happens with this. Could have lots of issues with airway clearance, right? We already know he was having hemoptysis. He could have more secretions there. That's just making it that every time he's trying to breathe on his own, that he's getting a little bit of plugging, that he's having difficulty breathing. Or, you know, it sounds like he was pretty calm, cooperative, able to converse, uh, you know, or at least signal his preferences in conversations with the team. But some people are just, you know, very agitated or just unaware and have difficulty working with the ventilator. So just need more time. And in those cases, a trach can just help facilitate sort of further vent weaning in a safer and more controlled way. And so, you know, I think there are trachs we do that are for a long time to just always be on, but we should also talk to our patients about this, that it can just be a way to sort of move the ball forward. So sounds like he did have preference for this trach. Curious how he did after he had it. As you guys were saying, and as Meredith was saying, at about day 10, they had the discussion with the patient and his family, and they all expressed... Um, interest in wanting the tracheostomy. So we went ahead and performed that. Around that same time as biopsy results actually came back showing a thymic neoplasm, which made us much more su uh, suspicious of a neuromuscular cause of his respiratory failure and difficulty with weaning from the ventilator. Specifically, thymic cancer can be associated with acquired myasthenia gravis. We discussed his case with our neurology colleagues and sent off acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, which came back elevated a few days later. He was started on IVIG and prednisone and quickly weaned a trach collar. CT surgery was called to evaluate as well for possible resection, but there was concern that the, there could be some pulmonary involvement of the mass. And so they wanted to see his response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to reassessing. Oncology started his first cycle of chemotherapy while he was in the hospital, and he was eventually decannulated prior to discharge home. Thanks so much, Kevin. And I, I feel like I've um, seen 
thymic neoplasms and acquired Mycenae gravis, more so on board style questions than I probably have seen in the real world so far, but definitely something to consider. And um, I think overall surprising kind of twist in, in our case. I know we touched on neuromuscular weakness earlier, uh, but that seems like a really occult case of respiratory failure to consider with his other abnormalities. Also, a large mass like that in the lung is not the typical way a thymic malignancy presents. Meredith, what are some things that you learned from this case? Yes, that's why we found this case to be so interesting, um, was that we did not have a high suspicion for this at all. Although, in retrospect, he had a lot of indications for neuromuscular respiratory failure, um, even though we weren't thinking about it. So, uh, interestingly, neuromuscular respiratory failure is a pretty rare cause of admission to the ICU, really only accounts as a primary cause of admission in less than half a percent of cases. It's usually an initial diagnosis, such as in our case, um, but sometimes it can be a complication of an existing disorder. It can arise from either the central or the peripheral neuromuscular components of respiration. Um, Patients may complain of disavowed exertion, cough after swallowing, or difficulty with secretions, dysphonia, um, and I think most interesting is orthopnea can be a prominent symptom. Uh, they'll often be tachypneic uh, with shallow breathing. They can be using accessory muscles. And they may have something called paradoxical breathing pattern, where the diaphragmatic weakness causes the thorax and abdominal muscles to be out of sync with each other. Yeah. And, and I think, like, just as you said, it was a rare cause. We don't always think about a lot. But it, interestingly, it's always just like this. We've sort of mentioned neuromuscular a couple times, like, just like, oh, yeah, you always have to consider neuromuscular. But then you don't really dive into it until it actually is the one that comes up. And I think a lot of this can um, be happening even sooner with exactly observing these types of things. So just watching someone breathe on a ventilator when they're failing or, or breathe even without when they're failing can be so helpful because you sort of see this different in the breathing pattern, you know, they're, where, or they can see them trying to use a lot of different muscles that they're having difficulty with. And so actually sitting there and saying like, okay, they failed their SBT but I'm going to redo it. You know, hopefully the SBT happened at 5 a.m. with our respiratory therapists and our SBT SAD protocols, but always worth it if someone's really not coming off to put them on pressure support, go watch and see what they look like when they're failing that trial. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we often misdiagnose air hunger as anxiety. And so I think this patient, you know, because he was calm and cooperative at other times, really should have keyed us into why he was having so much trouble um, with his pressure support trials. Absolutely. Uh, and so just in general, some of the other things we look for um, in patients with possible neuromuscular respiratory failure um, is a weak cough, secretion pooling, and they often have a very rapid clinical decline, which is what we saw in our case. Some of the tests that can help you support a diagnosis of neuromuscular respiratory failure include being unable to count to 20 in one breath, which is super easy to do at the bedside, so it can be pretty useful. Um, and then also hypercapnia, uh, as you would expect, as well as an FVC of less than 20 mLs per kilogram of ideal body weight, or a maximum inspiratory pressure less than negative 30 centimeters of water, and a maximum expiratory pressure less than 40 centimeters of water. And to kind of help you remember those, they're known as a 20, 30, 40 rule. On chest X-ray, you can see atelectasis, and then you can also use ultrasound, like Jesse mentioned, to look for diaphragmatic paralysis, um, 
And so they often show signs of respiratory distress because of all these things. Um, and if they do, they really should be moved to the ICU um, and partly because of that rapid clinical decline. BiPAP is a good initial option, but they should probably be avoided to have severe diaphragmatic dysfunction or they're having a lot of difficulty handling their own secretions. So it ends up that a lot of these patients may be intubated. Meredith, I love that 20, 30, 40 rule. I think that um, could, be a, could be a lot easier to remember. Uh, so I like the way that you framed that. And I personally love the bedside test. So as you mentioned, you know, counting to 20 in one breath is something easy that anyone can do. Um, and especially the NIF, our negative ins, um, inspiratory force, our MIP that you mentioned, which can be done, you know, at bedside as well. NIF can be done at bedside by um, RT, whereas MIP sometimes have to be done in the PFT lab. But I think two tests that you can really look for um, in a patient. So values even worse than negative 30, specifically those between zero and negative 20, have a really high positive predictive value for predicting leaning failure. Uh, Kevin, what else did you learn from this case? So um, another, just a quick note about thymomas. Um, they are an uncommon tumor of anterior mediastinum. They often present with autoimmune syndromes, most commonly myasthenia gravis, like in our patient, but also with red cell aplasia, parathyroid adenoma, or hypogynoglobulinemia. They usually appear as a well-rounded mass in the anterior mediastinum on imaging, but the large size of our patient's tumor made it appear more like a left upper lip mass. Um, complete resection is the mainstay of treatment, but in advanced or unresectable disease, chemotherapy plus or minus radi radiation therapy can be used. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I think it's always so important for us to consider the masses and the tumors. I mean, we have uh, some episodes upcoming that we're going to do on nodules and tumors in the lung. And I think that it's really important for us as pulmonologists to have an in-depth understanding of what these things can be. Well, this was a really great case, a great learning opportunity for our listeners. Uh, we always want to wrap up with a, a learning or takeaway point for everyone. Uh, and we also, about the patient, but you guys already told us he was uh, weaned to trade collar and able to be uh, doing much better before he left the hospital. So hopefully the rest of his treatment is going well. I think my teaching point, I'm going to take from the beginning of the case, just about these sort of staging procedures. And when we're kind of doing these procedures, I think it's always really important uh, that we ask our proceduralists that we want to have two things. We want to have enough tissue sample to make a diagnosis, to do any molecular testing, and then the right sites so that we can get the maximum advanced stage uh, of what we're looking for. So it may not always be the most convenient technique if it's just uh, to get that much, but we want to think about the whole picture when we're planning our biopsy. Uh, Monty, what about you? Thanks, Verve. And I think I'm going to take uh, my teaching point from Jesse and doing bedside POCUS. You know, not only um, did she tell us some things to look for for acute complications, but when a patient coming in with respiratory failure, considering um, if you um, have enough experience doing it, looking at um, diaphragmatic excursion as well as diaphragm for uh, potential etiology for that. So thank you for, for that, Jesse. Um, Meredith, I'll go to you. What's one learning point that you have from today? I think for me, the big takeaway is to keep a high level of suspicion for neuromuscular respiratory failure, especially in patients who have a very rapid clinical decline. So many of our patients are going to have other reasons for respiratory failure that I think it can be really easy to miss. Totally. Kevin, something that you'll want our learners, to, our listeners to take away today? Absolutely. So it's one of the things that we talk about a lot, which is just a thorough history of physical, especially in this type of case where 
we think of the more common things for hypercaptive respiratory failure, like COPD exacerbation in someone who's a smoker or post-obstructive pneumonia. But when you really look back at his history and physical, the signs were there for you, for, for us to find. Um, and so we, like we like you mentioned earlier, Dave, we, we mentioned neuromuscular disorders as, as some differentials earlier, but we often mention them and it's hard to get through to, to actually do all the, all the digging that we, that we should be doing for this. Totally. I totally agree. Jesse? I think the point that I want to drive home is that in patients with hypercapnic respiratory failure that receive an initial trial of non-invasive mechanical ventilation, um, really keeping that close watch on them with very frequent reassessments uh, to monitor for need for invasive mechanical ventilation. Yeah, absolutely. And since those were all we good, I have one more. I just have to add. I can't resist. The 20-30-40 rule, mm-hmm. right, for neuromuscular weakness, right? So FVC of less than 20 mils per kg. A NIF, a negative instatory force. This is always tricky. So negative 30 or less than that should be normal, right? So being that you should generate a lot of negative pressure, right? So a normal person really is like negative 100 is kind of what we're going for. But if you're between that zero and negative 30 area or really even zero and negative 20 is a higher um, positive predictive value, we get really worried about them. And then a maximal expiratory pressure of uh, um, uh, 40 centimeters water, which we look for in the PFT lab. So that 20, 30, 40 rule, I really like a lot. Same for, um, and I think finally, before we end today, you know, the purpose of doing our fellows case series is to build a network of outstanding pulmonary critical care, medicine physicians, educators, as well as programs. So Jesse, I'm going to start with you first, um, because I know you're a proud program director, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the University of Mississippi Medical Center? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, it, well, it's obviously a place that I hold near and dear to my heart. As like you guys mentioned, I have been here since day one of my training. I came here for medical school and stayed here every step of the way. And uh, I'm now in my fifth year as a faculty member um, and, and I'm in my second year as the pulmonary critical care program director. And um, it's a great place to train and a great place to work. It is the tertiary referral center of the state. And so, uh, and it's a very unhealthy and underserved state. So that, that makes for excellent pathology and our fellows really, really get excellent training uh, and a lot of exposure here. So. Awesome. Meredith, anything um, you want to share with us about University of Mississippi? Yeah, so Kevin and I argued over who would get to say the people. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to take the faculty and say that uh, we are really blessed with some amazing faculty here. Um, not only are they great teachers, uh, but they also give us a lot of autonomy and freedom. And they're so supportive. They're they're not just going to let you get clinical learning, but they're going to seek out opportunities and give you opportunities to help develop yourself in your career. So um, they truly treat us like colleagues and it makes for a great environment here. I love that. And Kevin, anything to add from your perspective? Sure. So uh, kind of to echo some of their points on the the pathology here is excellent. A lot of uh, significant sarcoidosis, which can be a little bit hard to find in some other regions. But again, the biggest thing really is is the people of the program. We were talking about it a bit earlier where we'll have two hours of conference on Wednesdays and afterwards 
pretty much everybody sits around and we're still just looking at imaging or talking about mm-hmm. images and almost nobody leaves and we just continue to talk for another hour. hour, hour, hour. <laughs> so that's one of the bigger draws here, I think. I love it. Sounds like a wonderful place and, you know, wonderful care and lots of difference to make in people's lives, which is awesome. Well, thank you all so much for coming on the show. Uh, this was a great episode and we're excited for you all to listen. This uh, script was written and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. Uh, the music in this episode is original music by Eric Rogers. And make sure you tune in next time for our ne- either a case episode or a roundtable discussion. We have a lot of great stuff coming your way. Mm-hmm.